in progress. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha, February 4th. It's a Friday. We're going to close out the Torah reading. Torah reading this week is Truma. We have so much to cover, and it's going to be a lot of fun. All right, so let's jump right in. I'm going to share my screen. We're up to, the, to reading number five of Truma. We have five, six, and seven. Okay, let's go. Exodus chapter 26. We are in the middle of the conversation about the Mishkan, the curtains, and all that stuff. 31 says, And you shall make a, divide, a dividing curtain, a dividing curtain of blue, purple, and crimson wool. That's the favorite uh, blend of wool colors. And twisted fine linen. Don't forget the linen, wool and linen. The work of a master weaver. He shall make it in a woven cherubim design. Once again, we have a design here. Design, as Rashi says, make designs of creatures, animals. We had that before with the lion and the eagle. I don't know if it's the same animal or different animals. Same animals or different animals. Either way, some sort of master weaving design. And you shall place it, this dividing curtain, on four pillars of acacia wood, overlay with gold. Their hook shall be gold on four silver sockets. And you shall place the dividing curtain beneath the clasps, and you should bring there, you shall bring there on the inner side of the dividing curtain the Ark of the Testimony. I'm going to explain exactly what's going on. Give me a minute. Let's read another, let's finish reading this verse. You shall bring there on the inner side of the dividing curtain the Ark of the Testimony, and the dividing curtain shall separate between, shall separate for you between the Holy and the Holy of Holies. So, very simple. And I'm actually going to use. Stop sharing for a second. I'm actually going to use that picture. I like that picture from that, from that link. Give me a sec. Okay, I'm going to share my screen once again. Make sure I have the right page. Okay, we're not going to do the Mishkan quiz. Okay, you can do that on your own for homework. Take a look at this picture. Love this. You have the outer wall, which we have not talked about at all yet. That wall has not yet been discussed. We've been talking about the inside. What's on the inside? We talked about the menorah. The bread, the table for the showbread, <coughs> we talked about, of course, the first thing was the Ark of the Covenant. And like I mentioned in the last, whatever, like this week, there were two sections inside this building. One was called the Kodesh, and the other was called the Kodesh HaKadashim. One was called the Holy, and the Holy of Holies. Two sacred spaces, one holier than the next. The Holy of Holies was the last third of this building, the end, the last western side. The west would be on this side, east would be here, north. South. The west, the west is the orientation to the, to the left over here in this picture, like it would be, right? So west is where the Holy of Holies was, that last third of this building. What separated between the rest of the space and the Holy of Holies? Well, that's exactly what the Torah is telling us, a dividing curtain of purple, blue, and crimson wool. And this curtain is placed on four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. And what that means to me, almost, I mean, we should probably pull up Rashi here. Um, four pillars inserted into four sockets with hooks attached to them, bent on the top in order to place upon them a pole around which the top of the divine curtain was wound. It's exactly what you're thinking. It's a frame. Yeah, it's a frame. This is talking about a frame over which... This dividing curtain works. Like, how, are you guys with me on this? Does this make sense? Let me check in. Does this make sense what I'm saying? You have a building, 
Yeah? And it's like in, you're inside a space. How do you separate between one space and the other? You need a mechitza, you need a separation. So they, they framed it out with pillars of acacia wood and they put the curtains hanging over it. And then when the, whole, when the high priest would go in once a year on Yom Kippur to the Holy of Holies, he would walk through that curtain. Somehow separate the curtain, walk through it, whatever it was, and the other side, that's where the ark was. That's exactly what the Torah is telling us. All right, back inside. Um, and you shall place the ark cover over the ark of the testimony in the Holy of Holies. We kind of know that from before. But I guess the point is that the ark cover may, may, may be that it covers, you only cover it once it's in place in the Holy of Holies. All right. Now the Torah is going to continue to talk about where all of the vessels that we spoke about, where they're all located. And you shall place the table. That was the, um, the table for the showbread. The table goes on the outer side of the dividing curtain. In other words, the larger space, the less holy space. And the menorah goes opposite the table on the southern side of the mishkan. You shall place the table on the northern side. You know what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull this back up. Right? North south, west, east. Can you guys see my mouse? Is it coming through? Like when I move my mouse around? Yes? Okay. So inside this last third on the western side was the Ark of the Covenant with the cover and the Kruvim. In this larger space inside the building, past the dividing curtain, on the outside of the dividing curtain, right, but still inside the building, you have the showbread table on the northern side, the menorah on the southern side, right? So inside this, if we were to have an x-ray vision, we would see the showbread table and the menorah back inside. And you shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent. That's the outer entrance of blue, purple, and crimson wool and twisted fine linen in the work of an embroiderer. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia. You need a framing for your... How are you going to hang up a curtain? On what? On what? So you got to make a frame and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold and you shall cast, them, cast for them five copper sockets. Once again, a frame for the entranceway. Here's your entranceway. Once again, the picture. Again, this is not a detailed picture. It's more of an artistic rendition, but it gives us enough to work with. This was the entrance. When you walked into this Mishkan, the, the, sorry, the sanctuary building of the Mishkan, you would walk in through this eastern side entrance. And that was framed out. You would walk in, you would enter the holies. You would walk past the dividing curtain, you'd be in the holy of holies. Of course, only Kohanim, only priests doing the service were allowed in the, holy, in the area of the holies. And only the high priest on Yom Kippur was allowed in the holy of holies. That takes us to the end of reading number five, which is good because we have two more. Let's go reading number six. And you shall make, chapter 27 of Exodus, and you shall make the altar, the altar. We're adding another item, another vessel. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. That's about seven and a half by seven and a half feet. The altar shall be square. Yeah, makes sense. And its height shall be three cubits. So it's four and a half feet high by seven and a half by seven and a half feet. So it's shorter and like a, like a pretty broad and wide square, a little bit short, shorter to the ground, four and a half feet up. Okay, let's continue. And you shall make its horns 
on its four corners. That means on each of the corners of the altar, there was a bit of a protrusion, like a horn of an animal sticking up on each of the four corners. Its horns shall be from it. In other words, made of the same material of the wood, the acacia wood, right? It should be made of the wood. And you shall overlay it with copper. So the altar is wood covered in copper. And you shall make its pots to remove its ashes. Pots, maybe ladles, scoops, something to remove the ashes. Just to explain for a second here, just so we're all on the same page here. The altar, time out. There were two altars. The inner altar and the outer altar. The inner altar went in that building. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the outer altar that was outside the building. That's not in the picture on Chabad.org because it's not a detailed picture. Right? So that altar is not there. There was an altar outside, right outside that entranceway. And that's known as the copper altar. It was wood covered with copper. On that altar is where all of the animal offerings and the flour, the meal offerings were brought. And they were brought and there was a fire burning on that altar and items were burned on that altar. And, you know, when you burn something, it creates a lot of ash. And so they had special tools that they made to remove the ash from the, temp, from the, from the altar. If you didn't remove the ash, at some point it would become a little bit overgrown. It would be like just ashes everywhere. So every once in a while, they would take away the ashes. It was part of the daily ritual, actually. The Trumas Hadeshin, they would take away the ashes. Ceremonial thing as well. Okay, let's jump back in and continue reading. So you had pots. You shall make its pots to remove its ashes and its shovels and its sprinkling basins and its flesh hooks and its scoops. You shall make all its implements of copper. Unlike... To be very clear here, unlike the other items that were gold-plated or solid gold, now the altar is copper. And honestly, makes sense. All of the other items that we've discussed, namely the ark, the menorah, the showbread table, all of those items were inside the building, in that holy sanctuary space, the covered space that only those that were doing the service could approach. Anything inside that building was gold. The altar was outside in the area that my mouse is circling, right outside. The, arc, the altar was outside. Copper. The inner stuff was gold. The outer stuff is copper. All right, back inside. And you shall make for it a copper grating of netting work, like a lattice work on the outside edges of the altar. And you shall make on the netting four copper rings on its four ends. So there's a copper netting, and from the netting, you have now four copper rings. Now, you know what the rings are. Every time we have rings, we know what it's for. You're going to put poles in there, and you're going to carry it, because that's, that's how this thing was portable. Everything had to be movable. And you shall place it, place it, beneath the ledge of the altar from below. And there was the netting, the design, shall be placed beneath the ledge of the altar from below, and the, and the net, the netting, shall extend downward until the middle of the altar. It's a decorative piece that went down from near the top to about halfway down. And you shall make poles for the altar, of course. 
As I mentioned a moment ago, you had the hole, you had the rings, you got to have poles. Poles of acacia wood, and of course, you shall overlay them with copper. Again, the inner items, gold. The outer, the outer altar, copper. And its poles shall be inserted into the rings, and the poles shall be on both sides of the altar when it is carried. So if the altar, I mean, the altar was a square, so it's not like it's a rectangle, but all right, whatever were deemed the two sides where the, the, the rings go were the two sides. You had two, you had, two, you had one, one pole in each. That's how they carried it. You shall make it hollow. The altar should be made hollow out of boards. As he showed you on the mountain, as God showed you Moses on the mountain, so shall they, the crafts people, do when they make this thing. Let's do some, let's toggle some Rashi's. I know there's a lot, everything's a big Rashi here. A lot of detail. Rashi's trying to, look how long this Rashi is. Rashi's trying to describe, you know, you could look at the blueprints or you could write them out. If you write them out, man, it's hard. It's hard to write out the, a blueprints, right? Imagine, imagine you have a building, a house, even a house, even, not a complex building, a house. Instead of drawing the blueprint, imagine you had to write it out in sentence form. Man alive. And you have the front steps that measure, you know, one foot high by one foot deep and, you know, seven feet wide. And you have 12 of them going up. That, imagine how, how detailed that would be to write it out. That's what's happening here. It's hard to visualize. So Rashi steps in to add more words to help us understand it a little bit better. Let's see if there's any Rashi's that catch the eye that we want to cover over here. Um... Rashi says, when it says the, the, the altar is five by five by three cubits high, first opinion says, literally, that's Rabbi Yehuda. But Rabbi Yossi says, no, it says here square. And concerning the inner altar, it says square. Just as there the height was twice its length, so too here its height was twice its length. How then do I understand that its height shall be three cubits? By the way, twice its length, how long was it? It was seven, the altar, we said before, right? Seven, no, I'm sorry, not seven and a half. Five, that's feet. Five by five cubits wide. Five long by five wide, five by five. So according to Rabbi Yose, how high was it? Not three. It was ten. Five times two, right? Its height was twice its length, Right? Then this method is, un, is known as Gzair Shava, similar word. How then do I understand the meaning of its height shall be three cubits? This means from the edge of the Soviv, the ledge surrounding the altar and higher, the ledge was three cubits from the top. That is from the Talmud Zavachim, Zev Zavachim, 68. So, right, the brackets explain. According to Rabbi Yehuda, the altar was literally three cubits high. According to Rabbi Yose, it was ten cubits high, with the upper three cubits above the ledge mentioned in verse number five. So I hope that's clear. Different opinions. And we see here that when you read the verses, there's really no telling of what it actually means without all of the, the commentary on it, without the, the, the discourse. And these are two opinions, quote in the Talmud, that are all based on solid understandings, solid um, analysis of the text. One says, five by five by three, that's it. It's three high. The other one says, no. It says here, square. It says by the inner altar, which is next week, we're going to talk about it next week, the inner golden altar, because it's inside, the golden incense altar, that was also square, and it meant that the height was double its length and width. 
So in this case, if the length and width is 5 by 5, right, 5 each way, then the height is 10. So what's the 3? Three? 3 from the ledge, the decorative edge, to the top, it was 3. But the whole thing spanned 10. Again, if we saw a picture of this, we, we had a sketch, it would be easy. You would see a square, 10 by 5 by 5. The first seven amos are just plain. The top three has a ledge with maybe some lattice work and all that stuff, or some netting, some decorative work. Okay, I hope that makes sense. Let's continue back inside. So already Rashi is hooking us up. Um, copper, Rashi says, is associated with brazenness. Yeah. It says, Azus Metzach, Metzachta Nechoshes. Your forehead is brazen. Oh, Metzachta Nechusha. Your forehead is brazen. Nechusha is related to Nechoshet, which means copper. So, brazen and copper in Hebrew, the words are very close, very similar. So, why the copper altar? For sins that uh, require chutzpah on, your part, on, on our part. We did something against Hashem. All right, that's a little chutzpah. So, we have an altar. To atone for that. Um, pots like kettles to remove the ashes. Shovels, sprinkling bases, sprinkling basins to receive the blood of the sacrifices, flesh hooks. That's where they would put the flesh of the offerings to turn it over on the coals of the altar to hasten its burning. They would like turn it over to burn more quickly. Okay. Copper grating. All right. Ledge of the altar. Wow, this is long. Hollowed. Let's go. Let's look at hollowed. There should be boards of acacia wood from all sides with a space in the middle. So the altar, right, however tall or short, whatever, there's two opinions, three or ten by five and five, should be, that should be boards, not solid wood. But it shall not be made of one piece of wood that would measure five by five. Like an anvil, like one solid block. That's not the goal here. Man, can you imagine how heavy that would be to lift? No solid, no solid wood. All right, let's go to reading number seven for today. And now we're going to talk about the courtyard, which is, yeah, this area, the, the courtyard. Straight up. Let's get back inside. You shall make the courtyard of the Mishkan. On the southern side, there shall be hangings for the courtyard of twisted fine linen, 100 cubits long on one side. Yeah, this was 100, 100 cubits. Look at the curtain. You see this? There were like posts. The outer wall, the outer courtyard wall was made of posts with fabric, with some sort of curtain fabric. So that's what the Torah is telling us. You shall make a courtyard. How do you make it? Hangings. That means like fabric hangings. Of twisted fine linen. That must have been beautiful. 100 cubits long on one side. And its pillars shall be 20. And their sockets 20 of copper. So now we have pillars and sockets. Not for the building of the Mishkan. That's what we had before. This is for the outer perimeter. The outer courtyard perimeter. The hooks and the pillars and their bands shall be of silver. Now we're dealing with silver. So the pillars were made of, doesn't say, 
It says pillars 20 and their sockets 20 of copper. Does that mean that the pillars are also copper? Let's see if we have that explanation. Yeah. No. The sockets of the pillars were copper. So Rashi says, the sockets of the pillars were copper. The sockets rested on the ground and the pillars were inserted into them. What were the pillars made out of? I'm assuming wood, but it's not, it's not, it's not specified here what they were made out of. Okay. That's my assumption. It says the pillars should be 20 pillars and the sockets should be 20, 20 copper sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be of silver. And so for the northern end of the length, hangings 100 cubits long, its pillars 20, and their sockets 20 of copper, the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. Same thing on the south, same thing on the north. So again, here you had, a, this was 100 amos, 150 feet. This southern edge, 150 feet, 100 amos. The northern end, same dimension. And of these, we had 20 posts. Do, are there 20 here? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. So we have exactly 20. Pretty much the scale. I don't know if the, if the corner one is counted for which side. I'm not sure. But it seems like there's 20 either way. I think even without the corner posts, there's 20 posts. Notice that these are not boards that are solid, like making a solid wall. These are posts that in between run linen. It was kind I mean, I don't know, but the linen that I've seen sometimes is a little bit, um, I don't see-through exactly, but you could see through linen. Linen is not a tightly woven fabric. Linen allows light to pass through. So imagine the beautiful image of the Mishkan. And that's why I love this picture, because it, I don't know, just, it's colorful. I love it. I guess I'm used to black and white images of the Mishkan. This is like, just feels good. So imagine you had this, um, imagine you're looking from the outside, like we are, at the Mishkan, right? Beautiful linen span courtyard. You can kind of see through it. It's beautiful. And then you have inside, beautiful building, and the, the altar outside. It's gorgeous. Let's continue. The width. So all of that is the length. The length was 100 amos, southern and northern side, and it had 20 pillars interspersed to cover that area to hold up the curtains. The width of the courtyard, that's the western and eastern sides, like the short ends, there were hangings of 50 cubits, half. Their pillars 10 and their sockets 10, so it's exactly half of the dimension. So it's not drawn to scale, maybe it is, I don't know, maybe it's approximately the scale. The, the, the length is twice the width, this is 100, 100 by 50, 50. 20 pillars, 10 pillars. 20 on the long edge, 10 on the short edge. Now the width of the courtyard on the eastern side was as well, 50 cubits. The hangings on the shoulder shall be 15 cubits. Wait, what's this? The hangings on the shoulder, on the shoulder shall be 15 cubits. Their pillars three and their sockets three. Let's see what the shoulder is. Five cubits between one pillar and another pillar. Between the pillar that is at the beginning. Oh, I see. Oh, it's the corner. Literally talking about the corner. The shoulder is the corner. Every corner, he says, is three. Three pillars. Right, the, the, the actual corner one, and the other two that are on the other sides respectively. Right, so you have 
This would be the southeast corner, right? The one where my mouse is running here, right? Southeast corner. So you have three pillars, three pillars right here. One, two, three. So he says, five cubits between one pillar and another pillar, between the pillar that is at the beginning of the south, which stands at the southeast corner, until the pillar that is one of the three in the east. Oh, he's not saying corner. He's saying, okay, three in the east, there, should, there were five cubits. And from it, this pillar to the second one, there was a space of five cubits. And from the second to the third, there were five cubits. And likewise, for the second, the northeastern shoulder, and four pillars for the screen. Thus, it, there were ten pillars in the east corresponding to the ten pillars of or on the west. To me, it's simple math. It's simple math. If this is 50 cubits, the short sides are 50, and you have 10 pillars, five cubits between each pillar. If you have, if you have 10 pillars that need to cover a span of 50 amos, then every pillar covers five amos. 10 times five is 50. Likewise, on the southern, the longer edges, you have 100 cubits covered by 20 posts. Yeah, each post is going to cover 10, sorry, five amos. 20 times 5 is 100. Just doing the math over here. Let's continue. Sorry, let me toggle Rashi off for a second so we have a little bit more space. We just did verse 14 about the hangs of the shoulder. And on the second shoulder, which is the opposite corner, the northwestern corner, there shall be 15 I'm sorry, no, on the second shoulder there should be 15 hangings. They're pillar three. One second. I don't think it means 15 hangs. I think it means 15 cubits like we had before. I mean, the translation is the translation, but I think it's referring to the same 15 cubits because there are pillars three and their sockets three. That matches what we said before. Okay. And at the gate of the courtyard shall be a screen of 20 cubits made of blue, purple, and crimson wool, and twisted fine linen, the work of an embroiderer. Their pillars, four, and their sockets, four. That's the gate of the courtyard. The gate of the courtyard, I do not believe we have any depiction here of a gate of the courtyard. Here it seems like the courtyard is nice and closed off, but it wasn't. Obviously, you had to get in. You weren't like repelling or, or uh, pole vaulting in. There was an opening, and here the Torah descri describes it. All of the pillars around the courtyard shall have silver bands, silver hooks, and copper sockets. The length of the courtyard shall be 100 cubits, and the width 50 by 50. So the length, we, we said this before, right? 100 by 50. The height of the hangings, oh, how, how high were these curtains? Shall be five cubits of twisted fine linen, and their sockets shall be of copper. So when we look at this image, it was only five cubits high. Five cubits high is about seven and a half feet. So a little taller than the average likely human being, unless you're a giant and you're a little bit taller than that. But otherwise, right, um, seven and a half feet, it's above eye level for most. The vast majority of people are not eye level to uh, seven and a half. Okay. So that's how tall it was. All the implements... This is it, by the way. This, these are the last words of this week's Torah portion. All the implements of the Mishkan for all its labor and all its pegs and the pegs of the courtyard shall be copper. All of the outer stuff is copper. So what we have here, 
Once again, reiteration of the fact that the outside space, that those items were primarily copper, a little bit of silver also, but mostly copper. The inside stuff was primarily gold, golden wood, but primarily gold. Okay, let me pause for a moment and, and jump in and, and ask you guys to jump in if there are any questions or clarifications. I know we didn't do most of the Rashi's and Rashi always adds, but I feel like just getting a general sense may be more ideal than getting a little bit confused with all the details. All right, questions or comments thus far? Makes sense? Rabbi? Yeah. I just wanted to show you. This is my Michigan bracelet. Hold on, let me stop sharing my screen so we can look at you larger. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's Akea wood beads. Nice. Acacia, yeah. Acacia, Acacia yeah. would be Acacia. Then, cop, then two copper beads. Wow. See, so the most of it is the wood, the Acacia wood. Right. And then the center is two copper and then one, sil one silver on each side and a center gold. Nice. So, yeah, so you can see how it goes from outer and inner. Love it. As, Love it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that... That's beautiful, and it's interesting that the, the metals, the ranking of preciousness, yeah, the rankings of right. preciousness that we have today were back then also. The outer stuff, the less, you know, less intense holy stuff was, was copper, some silver, and then when you get inside, you get the gold. Right, yeah, so one, Pretty cool. the center is one single gold, gold fill, you know, so that's precious, semi-precious. Then on either side of the gold is one one silver, so two silver altogether. Then either side of those are two copper each side. So Four copper, right. Copper, then silver, a singular gold. I love it. And then that Hasi is the giving me Beautiful. the overall strength. Yep. Beautiful. <laughs> I want to share some general ideas that I think are very powerful. So number one, so there's a lot of talk about wood. A lot of wood. You need a lot of wood for this project. You need to build, first of all, the walls of that Mishkan building, the, the actual covered building, that was all wood. It was all wood planks, like shoulder to shoulder. A lot of wood. And then you, the, the, alt, the ark was made out of wood. Gold covered wood, but still wood. And the showbread table was wood. And the outer altar was wood covered in copper. And the posts were wood. A lot of wood. Where'd they get the wood from? When, when they left Egypt, they got the gold, silver. They got the precious gems. They got the metals. They got the wealth. But where's the wood from? There's an unbelievable tradition. The tradition goes that when Jacob... Our, our forefather Jacob, Jacob the patriarch, when he first went down to Egypt after discovering that his long-lost son Joseph was alive, he packs up his family and he heads down to Egypt. He brought trees with him. I guess baby trees or whatever it was, or saplings, whatever it's called, right? He bought, I don't know if sapling, whatever. He bought baby trees down to Egypt with him. He had them moved. And what was the intention? He then planted them in Egypt. And he told his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and anyone who would listen. When they asked him, what's with the trees that you planted? He said, these are the trees that ultimately will provide the wood that will ultimately build God's home when we get out of this place and head back to our homeland. This 
was the faith that Jacob had. Jacob had fierce faith in God that God was not going to leave them forever languishing or lost in Egypt. That there would be an exodus. Maybe not the slavery. I mean, it doesn't have to be slavery. But at some point, the Jews are going to leave. And when they leave, they're going to need wood to build a home for God, to build an altar, to build all the various items. He had this prophetic vision. And so he brought down the actual trees, the actual wood, trees for the wood that would be needed to build it. So that's one thing. The idea of incredible faith. Such faith and trust in Hashem, the one actually packs a tree, literally packs a tree to bring down. So that's one message. Another message that I think is very important is we just read the dimensions of the Mishkan. And I don't mean the inner building, even the outer courtyard. It was the largest footprint of the Mishkan, the Mishkan took up, including the courtyard, was 100 by 50 cubits. Each cubit, I said, is about a foot and a half. So what is that? 150 feet by 75 feet. 150 feet by 75 feet. Smaller than a football field. Right, a football field is 100 yards, which is 300 feet. Half a football field. Essentially half of a football field. From the end zone to the 50-yard line, and I'm not sure how long the, um, the width of a football field is, but imagine that 150 feet by 75 feet. Relatively small. And yet, that was God's home. That was God's home. The question is, we asked this question Wednesday night, what does it even mean? God's home is in this relatively small footprint? Isn't God much bigger than this 150 by 75 space? Isn't God everywhere? Isn't God ultimately transcendent and infinite? And what does it mean that, that this is God's space? What does that even mean? There's a powerful lesson for us. I mean, there are many answers, and we touched on this at the Wednesday night class a little bit. Somebody asked the question, Steve asked the question, I responded, but I want to go a little bit deeper. In our lives, anything could be holy, right? It's, it's anything that we do could be holy. But in order for anything to be holy, we need to have certain intentional holy spaces and holy moments. And it's from those intentional spaces and moments that the holiness can then flow to other areas of our lives. In other words, we have to have those sacred moments in our, in our day. Torah study, prayer, doing a mitzvah. We have to have those sacred spaces in our heart, in our soul, in our schedule, in our physical neighborhoods, physical, practical you know, spaces on every understanding, every, every level of the word space, where we are with God. Does that mean God's not outside those spaces? God's also outside those spaces. But if you really want to find God outside the space, you have to cultivate a solid space for God. Because if you don't cu cultivate one solid space for God, then you're not going to find God in those other spaces. I'm, in very simple terms, you have to have a sacred time of prayer Study, meditation, prayer every single day in order to hope that when you eat, you're going to have 
spiritual intentionality. If you don't have a sacred space for prayer, then you're not going to find God in the food. It's not going to happen. It's when, you, it's when you create that space, even if it's a small space, even 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 3 minutes, when you have that sacred space for God, then you can, from that point, you can then emanate and share that with the other areas of your life. Then when you go down and eat lunch, you can pause for a moment and give thanks and gratitude to God Almighty for, for, for providing the food. And you'll eat the food with an intentionality of I'm eating it for the energy to be able to continue my mission on earth and make this world a home for God. And the eating becomes a holy experience. But it's not going to happen if you don't have a focused space for God. So does God need a space? No. I mean, maybe. Can't say no. I'm not God. But you know who needs a space for God? We need. We need to carve out spaces for God, even if it seems very small. God is going to fit in this space. Don't worry about God. Worry about you. You make a space for God. I'm going to say you, I mean me. I don't mean you. I mean us, all of us, me. I need to create space for God because I need that connection. Does God need a space, a contained space? Obviously not. But I need to have a space that's all God all the time. No, well, not all the time, but that's, that's all God. I need that concentrated space. Where when I go into that space or that time, it's the real deal. And I think we have that. All of us have that, especially this group, right? We have that every day, Monday through Friday. We have DPP, one hour of time. I'm calling that a space, time, space, same thing. It's, it's one hour of space in our lives in which we study Torah together. And it's all about Torah. It's all about connecting with divine wisdom, divine will. What does Hashem want? What's the, what's the vision? And today we're learning what the vision is. You know what the vision is? What we're doing. I mean, and other things, but it's a very meta conversation. The vision, right? What does God want? God says, build me a temple and I'll be there. Only there? Start with that. Start with one space. <laughs> and then from there, you'll, you'll expand. Start with one space, but it's so small. Don't worry about God. Make a space for God. You make a space for God. The greatest miracle of all is human beings creating space for God. We have busy schedules and we have, you know, we're physical creatures. And we have all this other stuff going on. If you and I can make, and we do, when we make a space for God, that is epic. And the goal is, of course, from the space, from that limited space, if you will, that we make for God, should expand and fill the rest of our time and space. One space at a time. Start with one and expand. We need a space for prayer, Torah study, intentional mitzvah doing. We're always doing good deeds, but intentional mitzvah doing. And then from there, our other mundane activities will become transformed so that our eating is not just selfish or animalistic, it's holy. So that our conversations are not just grub. You know what grub means? Coarse and unrefined, but they're of meaning and value. That when we meet someone, we don't just banter about the weather, but we actually inspire each other. So that when, I'm trying to think, when we drive down the street and wait in carpool line or go to the store or whatever it is, these are all opportunities for higher connection to make this world into a better place. So, what's the moral of the story? The Mishkan was only 100 by 50 cubits, 150 feet by 75, relatively small space. 
But it's not about the size of the space. It's about the essential concept of making space for God. No matter how big or how small, when you make space for God, it's infinitely valuable. So let us, as we enter Shabbos, Shabbos, of course, is a full day that's supposed to be a space for God. As we enter Shabbos, let us think about ways in which in the coming weeks and months ahead and years ahead, that we will continue to create more and more spaces for Hashem. We all have a space, right? 12 to 1-ish. We have a space for Hashem. Let's create, and, and other times, of course, but let's create more spaces. And let's focus on areas that maybe which we're not yet, you know, hitting on all cylinders. So if we got the Torah study, great. Let's, not to diminish that, but let's also look at maybe some time for, for prayer or for intentional mitzvah activities. And in that way, we become a little bit more well-rounded and continue to, uh, to expand the spaces that we have for God. All right, I hope this makes sense. Rob, I also, you know, to continue the, uh, your point that the space doesn't have to be big. But right. in fact, if it was even bigger, that it might get lost. You know, we might get lost within it. It might be... Correct. And, and, and on a practical level, if we try to bite off more than we can chew, like, I'm going to pray for two hours. Uh, maybe try 10 minutes, right? But, but make it real. Then two... You know, back in the day, men would wear tefillin all day. They would put it on in the morning and wear tefillin all day. Nowadays, we only... I mean, not on Shabbos. We put on tefillin on the weekday, but only while we're doing the morning service and then we take it off. Why? Because back in the day, they could create that space, that intentionality for God all day. Nowadays, we're lucky if we get a few minutes in. So we, we, we got it right. I like what you're saying. We got to be practical. You go too big, it's, it's also not good. Make it, it's better to have a few minutes of focus than many minutes of distraction. Because what's the point of distraction? We have that anyway. We don't need, you know, we don't need more distraction. So let's focus. And then the goal is, of course, to slowly expand the focus, but let's, let's be realistic. And I like what you're saying. Be realistic about the goals. Okay, great. Have a one, I want to wish everybody, first of all, thank you for, for being here. Thanks for being part of this space that we've created for Hashem and Hashem's Torah. You know what? I, I want to mention one other thing. There's a blessing amongst the morning blessings where we thank Hashem for giving us the Torah. And it says that every day before studying Torah, we should make sure to say that blessing Thank you, Hashem, for giving us the Torah. And it's, there's an there's a, there's actual liturgy. You can look it up. Just Google, I would Google Chabad or whatever, Chabad. Um, blessing upon Torah study or blessing before Torah study. And you'll find it. And it's worthwhile. And I'll tell you why, why I'm suggesting this. Because the experience of Torah study really should be completely about God. In other words, it's a moment in time, an experience in, where, in which we're connecting with divine wisdom. The blessing that acknowledges that God has given us the Torah is really acknowledging that it's not ours, it's God's. Even as we understand it, even as we study, even as we come up with new ideas, which we're supposed to, right? But it's still God's Torah, it's still God's gift. And it's still a sacred space. It's not just an academic intellectual experience, it's a sacred space. To get us focused on that, it's good to say the blessing beforehand. So maybe this is a good resolution. I don't know if we're going to do it formally before, you know, at the beginning of, of classes, but on your own. You know, you can, uh, 
Look up the, the blessing on the Torah. Let me see if I can find it quickly. Chabad, blessing, Torah, study. Let's see what comes up. The blessings on the... No, that's not what I'm looking for here. All right, it's in the prayer book. To be continued. Well, I'll, fi I'll find the version and maybe I'll share it next week. All right. One word, Lord, oh God, make the teaching of you the Torah pleasant in all mouths and continue that prayer. It's the one, let me see, hold on. Give me a second. It's in the morning, yes, yeah. Well, there's a few, there's like a series of a few. There's yeah, like a few. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's the, um, I'm referring to. Three. Even, yeah, even there, there's a few blessings. But I'm referring to even the one. Well, yeah, there's literally three. There's literally three. You say it on synagogue on Saturday, right before we read the Torah. Yes. Yeah, so, well, there's one. There's one that says, Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the Universe. I'm just looking at my sitter app over here, as you can see. One says, Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the Universe, um, uh, who commanded, gave us a mitzvah that commanded us, al divrei sora, uh, um, concerning the words of Torah. Then there's another paragraph that says, Blessed are you, God, who had taught the Torah to his, his nation, Israel. And then there's the third blessing, which is the one that we say in synagogue before reading the Torah. Blessed are you, Lord of God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the nations and gave us the Torah. Baruch Hashem, blessed are you, no sin Torah, the giver of the Torah. I mean, all three should be recited, but, you know, you can start with one and then, and then expand to all three. But basically, all three acknowledge that the Torah is really God's Torah. And that, that makes it not just an intellectual experience, but a divine experience, where I'm literally connecting with divine wisdom and the divine will in, the, in this moment. It's not just about, you know, understanding something, it's about a higher experience, and that's good in creating space for I God. give an example for that, because I was actually speaking with a Seventh-day Adventist mm. yesterday, and he told me, in Leviticus, such XYZ, that's where the law, the kosher laws are. I said, right. I think it comes before that, but I mean, so he's not studying the Torah for this Judaism spirituality, right? He's just studying it as... Academically, yeah. 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 Right, right. It's interesting. It's interesting. There's a guy there, a Jewish guy, A.J. Jacobs. He wrote a book some years ago called my, something along the lines of My Life of Living Biblically, where he basically just, you know, read the Bible and tried to live by the Bible literally. So he's a, he's a humorist, so it's, it's hilarious. But the point is that, yeah, that's, that's kind of like, uh, you know, a, a, an activity or a, um, you know, like uh, something to do for a year. Whereas Torah is really meant to make us be connected. I'm not, it's not a criticism of him. It's what I, just saying that, like, it's meant to be a divine experience. So here's the imagery. If we want to, like, you know, like picture the image. Picture that mishkan. 100 by 50 cubits, right? 150 feet by 75 feet. Picture that. In that space was God. How do we create that space in our lives? Where, in which spaces do we have that courtyard? You know, you got to put up walls to make sure that keep out. For this minute or two or five or 10 or 30 or 60, for these minutes, everything stays out. I got a dividing, I got a machitza, I got a dividing curtain, right? Inside is sacred, outside, whatever. In this space, it's sacred. 
And there are different levels, of course, within the space. There's the outer space, the inner space, the inner of the inner space. But either way, it's all about those, those walls. That last, the last piece that we studied about the outer walls of the courtyard, which had the post, the post and the linen fabric around it, that's the key to creating space for God. Putting up a little bit of a wall, saying all distractions out for these few minutes or whatever, it's all about God. All right, thank you very much for joining. I want to wish everybody a good Shabbos, a Shabbos of light and blessings and joy and positivity and, of course, sacred union with Hashem. Uh, we'll see you next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Sunday morning, Kabbalah and coffee. I think that's it for Sunday. Maybe, yeah. All right, we'll see you guys. Good Shabbos. Take care. Shabbat Shalom. Take care, everybody.